What is up, everybody? It is Rafael Garcia. Today is February 22nd, and the MMA Ratings Podcast is back um, for another edition of our show to talk all things MMA. Yeah, we weren't here last week because I was traveling. I was actually in the country of Cuba, so I was unable to get to you guys and talk about all things MMA, but actually I missed just about everything uh, just because I was out of the country. But that doesn't mean we still can't have a great show today. Shawan is going to join us in a moment because we're going to have to talk about things that went down this past week in mixed martial arts. We have quite a bit to talk about from Bellator 172, um, UFC Fight Night 105, and Bellator 173 coming up this week. We also have uh, news that we're going to be talking about from um, this past week in uh, the sport. So... Go ahead and do some live tweeting there as, as I usually do. So let's see. Let me get my partner in crime. Let me get Schwan taken care of to make sure he can get into the show. He is on his way home uh, and running a little bit behind schedule. So I just want to make sure that we get him in there because I know that all of our listeners definitely enjoy uh, hearing what he has to say about the game. Um, what is actually interesting is that, you know, I definitely want to thank everyone for their support over recent weeks. Our show with um, with Marcus Davis from a few weeks back before UFC 205, was that? You know, UFC 208 was um, a much success as our, as our highest viewed show so far. Um, and we want to thank everybody who took the time out to watch and like and um basically give us some good feedback in reference to that show. Again, thanks to um, Marcus for joining us. And that's something that we plan on doing more of with this showcase. You know, we're going to be looking at some more interviews, some more conversation specials, uh, just to bring you not only commentary and conversations with great fighters, but to bring you conversations with other individuals within the sport and not just um, MMA per se, but I'm also looking at competitive grappling and other areas in combat sports just to bring people on talk about um, what they're doing, and just to give our show a, a new look. I have some um, journalist friends that I'm looking forward to, to bringing onto the show as well, and just some other individuals who I think that you would be um, happy to hear from. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and get started and look at some of our topics today. And always, I want to. We always want to start back by looking back to um, the action from this past weekend. And I wanted to start with uh, Bellator one seventy two, where probably the two biggest uh, stories from that night were the fact that both um, Josh Thompson and Josh Koscheck lost. Now, um, while that may not seem like a surprising situation uh, is still a blow to the organization when two of two big name signings like that um, are dropped and basically finished. Um, Thompson was more of a surprise than Koshak. Definitely Josh is riding a six fight um, losing streak and hasn't been performing 
and hasn't been performing well at all. Um, Thompson, on the other hand, has been kind of surging as of late, and and I know the promotion was looking forward to um, booking a fight with him and uh, Michael Chandler at some point in the future. And I think that would have been one of their most important lightweight fights that that that, that the promotion could have put together. But this um, this loss definitely puts a a uh, was it a hamper, uh, 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 like a throws a, a screwdriver into those plans? Excuse me, I just I was completely uh, blanked out on euphemisms there. But yeah, he was stopped in the 40 seconds into the second round uh, via KO. And that definitely, and that definitely kind of stops some moments within that division as a whole because they can't even really bring back Michael Chandler to have him fight um, Patricky Fierre again because I think I think that was Fierre's most recent fight in the cage. Yeah, where he was knocked out by Michael Chandler in the first round, and that was back in um, June of last year. So they really, um, it'll it'll be interesting to see what they do next with that division there. Um, I was looking forward to seeing Thompson and uh, Chandler go, but unfortunately that's probably not going to happen. At least not uh, so soon with him coming off of a loss. And as we said, you know, on the other hand, you had, you had Josh Koscheck who took a yet another knockout loss. Um, this is the fifth time. This is the sixth time he's been stopped during his six-fight win streak. Let me look. Um, let me see. Let me see. So Josh Koshtek has now lost six fights in a row. He's been knocked out four times and submitted twice. I mean, that, that says quite a bit. I mean, Koshtek is 39. It had been two years since he fought last, and his last win came five years ago, February 4th, 2012, at UFC 143, where he got a split decision against Mike Pierce. That split decision that lost that he had against UFC on Fox 3 against Johnny Hendricks was probably his last great performance. But that that tells um, tells you a lot there, man. Like Just to see him fall off like that uh, speaks volumes because there was a point in time when Kashuk was the man to beat. He was the man to beat in the um in the division. He wasn't a champion, but he was someone that was definitely uh, headed in the right direction. And ever since you know he had that loss to um, George St. Pierre, where he took that eye injury or he took that damage to his eye back in uh, 2010, he's never really been the same guy since. And this fight right here. Nope. I hope that this is the last time we see him fight. Um, I would rather not have to watch him step into the cage again just because you don't want to see guys get pounded at, at this point in their career. Um, it's a tough thing to watch. And at 39 years old, again, you got to ask what type of damage is Koshek been taking. He's been doing this for 13 years now. Um and it's, the situation just seems to get more and more dire. Uh, Schwan, how you doing there, sir? I see you. Made it in. How you doing, Schwan, man? Can you hear me? Yes, can you hear me? Uh, yes, your volume is very low, though. Okay. 
Try it now. Yeah, can you hear me now? Yeah, much better. Yeah, I heard came in. I heard you talking about Josh Koscheck. That was a sad ending, man. Yeah, that man. We're, um, we're yeah, we're starting off with Bellator one seventy two, and um, man, that's finish number six in six fight six straight losing six fights losing streak. That's the sixth time he's been finished. The fourth, uh, excuse me. That's the third time he's been finished. Uh, excuse me, the third time he's been finished by knockout. He's been finished five times in this six-fight losing streak. Um, who was the biggest loser, man? Him or him or Josh Thompson? Um, I'd have to say I'd have to say Koscheck because Thompson had been fighting fairly regularly. He actually had two wins in Bellator, and the guy he lost to was a guy he had a chance to lose to even even if he was in his prime. Pitbull is that good. He's a guy who can compete with the UFC. The the top 15 in the UFC. So he lost to a guy who he should, they would have been 50-50 even at his best. Koscheck lost to a guy that at his best, he would never lost to that kind of, that caliber opponent. In fashion that, you know, I mean, he wasn't even able to really generate any serious offense at all. I'm kind of surprised that his team, whether it's his coaching staff or his actual financing team, let him take a fight like that. I mean, I just, it just seems like a lot of mistakes made all, all the way around regarding Koscheck and Bellator. Yeah, you know, there was a point in time where Koscheck was my favorite fighter. It's unfortunate to see him go down like this. Um, I'm not surprised at all, uh, but it's, it's still hard to see. You know, he's 39 years old. I'm not sure what he's clinging on to. I also don't know what his life would be like if he walked away from fighting. Um, not sure what he would really have left outside of, of, of the game. So it's definitely hard to see him step in there, continue stepping in there and... I hope Bellator does not allow him to get back in there again. But knowing them, they'll probably bring him into the. Or they'll probably bring him in again, especially if they can find a way to sell that rematch against Paul Daly. I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind it had they had he had some activity before, even put together some wins over some guys who won his caliber. But I mean, he he hasn't done anything. He hasn't been active at all. And to me, it's like I know it might be hard to adjust to life without fighting. But at this stage of his career, he should at this age. Given the wear and tear he's had on his body, he should be looking for a way out, or he should have already established one at this stage. I mean, at his age, given how many fights he's been in and the damage he's accrued, he has to know that this day is coming sooner than later. He—that's just common sense. He can't be that—he he can't be that separated from reality that he thinks that he's going to be—he's going to go on some kind of five-fight win streak and and get a title shot, even in Bellator. I mean, that's that's kind of beyond um, being unrealistic. That's just—it's almost ludicrous. Yeah, so it was—it was—it was definitely—it um, was definitely it was, it was pretty sad. damn, pretty damn it bad. A, it was a sad ending, and, and it makes me wonder. I know, I know that Coker likes to put on guys with name value, but it's like we talked about earlier with Bellator—they bring in a lot of guys with name value and a few guys who have top-level talent, and then they just have this huge drop-off, so that you—you—that leaves a space for guys like Koscheck because you don't have any in-between talent. You don't have any legitimate guys who are g generating interest through their, through their fights, through their records, or the fan base they developed on their own. So you have to bring in guys like Koscheck for that kind, of, that kind of cheap heat. And it works well when those guys can put a win or two together. But when you have a guy come in and he gets smoked like that, it just highlights the limitations of the organization and how they're run. I don't think Coker is a, a dumb guy or, or he's ineffective. He's done a great job with Bellator. It's hard. It's hard for it not to set 
the organization back because of what Koshik had done to him in the UFC. And then you have him come out in the Bellator. It's like, what did you really think was going to happen? He hasn't been competitive with anybody in years. So what's next for him? Like, in my opinion, you know, um, I think, again, as I said, I think he should walk away. I don't, I don't know if Bellator will be so willing to let him do that with as much money um, that they've kind of invested in him. I just read, uh, looking at the payouts from Bellator 172, he, I think, is third on the list of fighters. Um, let's see. I think he got paid 75K, and that is um, third after... Let me see. Um, Patricky got 80 for 40 and 40. Um, Thompson only got 10,000 for his loss. That's amazing. And Czech Congo, or excuse me, got 75. And yeah, Josh Koshchek got 75. Yeah, I, I just don't see what they can do with them when you have that kind of loss and you're in a division as competitive as welterweight and you have all the guys in all the guys in that division have good defensive wrestling. What do you do with a guy like Koscheck? I mean, how do you even sell that? How do you sell that against any anybody who in their top three or four? I, I don't understand that. I don't see how they do it. I mean, the best thing they could do is maybe have him be a face of Bellator, maybe work with talent or something of that nature. But his his value as a fighter non-existent, especially after a loss like that. I mean, how do you how do you repackage that? and make him a viable interest as far as a fighter. I don't think you really can. Um, I think you really do struggle when trying to um, do that. Uh, what are your thoughts about Josh Thompson, though? Is his loss um, worse? Like, how do they kind of, – because they were headed in the right direction with um, the idea of Thompson versus Chandler, but this, this loss completely blows up the potential of, of that fight in the near future. Well, I felt like I felt that Thompson could have had some success with Chandler. I really do. I, as good as Chandler is wrestling, I still think he he's hasn't quite recovered from that series he had with um, Eddie Alvarez and then with uh, who's the guy who fights him? Will Will Brooks. I don't think he's fully recovered from that. I still think he's vulnerable in spots if you can get to him. So I thought that that fight might have been a better fit for Thompson. Um, I mean, Thompson can still fight. It wasn't like he just got totally smoked. He wasn't like Koscheck where he was afraid to get hit and he, he couldn't put any effective offense or counters together. He, he showed some skills. And he showed some awareness. It's just against a, an opponent of that caliber, it highlights some of the limitations to Thompson's game. He's never been a subtle, nuanced type guy. He's been a guy who a lot of his success was built around his athleticism that allowed him to do certain things and allowed him to put certain things together. It wasn't that he was such a good grappler. He was such a good wrestler. He was such a good striker. It's that he was very competent in all three areas and he had the athleticism capable to put those put them together. But every time you put him against a comparable athlete, he's never looked, he's never looked great against comparable, comparable level of athleticism. He didn't in the UFC and he, in this case, he didn't against he didn't against people. He's never been able to dominate when he doesn't have that huge athletic advantage. But he can still win. He's just not elite anymore. I mean, there's a couple good matchups for him, but the fact is, his chin's not there like he used to be. And since he doesn't have that layered, subtle nuance defense, he's going to get hit a lot more because he's lost a step, and he's not going to be able to do as much offensive damage because he's lost a step. He's just getting by on savvy, smarts, and veteran toughness. But that's not enough against the guys they would have him facing at this level. As long as he's facing, you know, kind of guys in the top 15 of Bellator, top 20 or some of the guys like that, 
he can do well enough. He's got enough experience and uh, skill to outclass those guys. But when you get him against the best guys, he's going to get exposed. His his limitations as a fighter are going to get exposed at this point because he doesn't have the athleticism to cover it up anymore. So what happens um, now with that whole division? Do they – do they – what do they do with Michael Chandler, man? He's, he's such a head and shoulders above everyone else in the um, organization right now. What do they do with him? It's it's a hard question because, and I, keep, I hate to keep saying this, but it's like I wrote, I wrote a piece about the problem with Bellator, and it's like they've got all these top heavy. They've got – in their every division they have three or four guys who can compete in the UFC, but the gap between their top three and four and the gap between five to 15 – the gap between them, it's, it's so huge. It's just a huge drop-off. You have guys from the UFC who are in the top 25 who come into Bellator and compete with their top top three, four, five, six, seven. But the guys in Bellator, after you get those first through four, you don't have anybody who can compete at a high level in the UFC or an organization like that. So it's like you get you get these, these rematches that you don't ask for, these fights that haven't even had enough time to build up interest because you've seen the guys continue, continue to win against a high level of competition. So what's going to end up happening is Chandler's going to either start having a bunch of rematches, which he probably won't have an interest in because his, he's the only one who has something to lose, or he's going to start moving up and picking his spots and fighting it at a welterweight, possibly. Because, I mean, there's just not too many exciting big money matchups for him in Bellator. I mean, he can't fight Alvarez. Alvarez in the UFC. He can't fight Brooks again. Brooks is in the UFC. So all the other guys he's, he's about to face right now, are guys he's essentially beaten, you know, even the guys who aren't elite, like Rickles, he's beaten him. Uh, Henderson, it was a good fight, but you can't just put Henderson back in there with him without Henderson putting it together a couple of wins. I guess he could fight Pitbull again, but, I mean, you know, it just starts getting to a point of repetition. You know, it, it, they, don't have enough to, they don't have enough guys to, to build up interest in fights, and he's, he, there's no fight in there that's going to make him the money and get him the acclaim he wants. The only way he's going to get any really attention or recognition is if he moves up a weight class for a special fight or something of that nature. I mean, they've kind of they've kind of put themselves back themselves into a corner with Michael Chandler and with the divisions in general, just because they don't have enough depth. They, it's just not deep enough. So when you look at a situation like that, what is your professional uh, suggestion? to the promotion? Like, how, how would you think that they should fix their um, lightweight division? Well, not even just a lightweight division, but there's a, uh, Luke Thomas was talking about this today on his show, or yesterday, because he was asked similar questions about um, about just the, vi- the long-term viability of Bellator and what they can do um, with generating new stars. So how do they fix this issue? It's like, it's like I said, the thing is, when you bring in prospects, the the way the only way prospects work is if you if you have different tiers of fighters that you can bring them up through where they can work on their skills where a guy like maybe a guy's a really good grappler maybe a guy works at a really high pace maybe a guy's a really good wrestler maybe a guy's a really good striker different guys at different levels of experience and different skill sets physical and technical and you bring th- those prospects up and round them out so that by the time they get to your top three or four or top ten they're prepared they can put on they can compete. And they can fight without either totally getting a career-changing beating or maybe they could possibly beat one of the guys in the top four or five. The problem with Bellator is they're not, they spend too much time on bringing in big names. Vincent Henderson is a big name. But how many viable fights do you have for Vincent Henderson? As soon as he comes in, you have him fighting for a welterweight title because you've got to get the investment back on the money you put in. 
you don't even have time to kind of slowly work him in against a, you know, a, a top 10 guy or a top 15 guy. He's got to go right after the number one guy. And then in the other fight, he's got to go after one of the top, another one of the top guys. I mean, all his fights, even though he's only one, he's one and two in Bellator, all his fights have been against guys who are number one or number two in their divisions. You know, it's like, that's not how you build a momentum. That's not how you let somebody get acclimated and build their brand in the organization. Because when you throw him in with those number one, number two guys, it's hit or miss. Either he's going to come and smoke your guy, which makes your organization look suspect, or your guy's going to smoke him, in which case you just spend all this money on the guy and put him in the highest profile fight, and now he's lost it. So now people are going to wonder, what kind of goods did you get for the money you invested? So what they need to do is just get a broader scope of guys, not just names, not just not just people with flashy records, but guys who can legitimately fight and start filling out their division. So they don't have just three or four guys who can fight. They have one through 15 guys who can fight, one through at least 10 or 12 guys who can fight. That creates interesting matchups. People opportunities to learn their skill sets and kind of get accustomed to the Bellator way of doing things and build a brand because they're putting on good fights against guys who can test them and help them develop. But they don't have that. They have a rich and they have, they have a rich class and a poor class. There's no middle class. And without a middle class, you can't develop guys. You can't build a name. You can't spread that person and let them get familiar with the fans because every fight you're putting them into is a war and every fight has such high, uh, high stakes in it. You know, when Conor McGregor came in, they didn't just put him with the biggest guy in the world. You know, when Jake Shields came in, they didn't put him in with the biggest guy in the world. They put him in with the guy who was in the, who was a top 10 guy. They didn't put him in with the best guy right away. They wanted to see what he had. He had to win a fight to put him in position to get that title shot. Eddie Alvarez didn't come in against uh-huh. another two or three guy. He came in against, you know, he came, he came in and they slowly worked him out. When he lost the fight against Cerrone, they built him up against ranks, but not elite guys. So we can kind of see if they can get him back on track and see what he could do and put himself in position to compete for a title again. That's how it works. But Bellator doesn't have that option because they don't have enough depth. Too much money spent on big names and high, big signings and not enough on filling out their roster with viable, experienced, skilled, physically talented guys. Maybe not elite guys, but like Neil Magny type guys. Yeah, I, I can definitely um, see where you're headed there. I can definitely see where you're um, talking about. Since we're talking about Bellator here, I wanted to also talk about Liam McGarry. I wrote a piece this week about him where I think that this is an annual opportunity for him to kind of remind public who he is. Um, he had that bad loss to... Um, what was the guys uh, Phil Davis in his the last loss fight. that we predicted? Yeah, loss that we called two a T. He had that bad loss um, in that title fight, and now he's kind of he's, he's trying to um, make a return. What What was interesting is like his original opponent was a guy who had been submitted four times already. Um, it was it, this. Both of these fights are the epitome of, of tune-up fights, and I'm not mad at that. Um, I see what they're trying to do and what they're trying to uh, what they're trying to what trying to achieve with him. My question is, um, what do you do with him? Like, do you do you uh, how do you build this guy back up? It's like I, I hate to be sound like that broken record, but it's like how do you bring a, build somebody back up when you only have one or two, maybe three viable options in the division? It, it's very hard. It's in this fight he has set up. It wasn't even like like a, a, a 
a tune-up. A tune-up is a fight where it gives you an opportunity to work some things, develop your skill set, a guy who can go some rounds, can defend, can attack enough, who can kind of hold his own in spots. A squash match is when a guy is so far outclassed, and that's what it looks like with McGeary. He, the guy he's facing, in my opinion, based on what I've heard and what I've seen, isn't his caliber of opponent. So it's like beating up a guy who's not any competition, doesn't have any name value, doesn't help you. It doesn't put you in a position where you can justify getting another title shot or give you build you up any momentum where the fans can be like, oh, now we, we remember why we, why we like this guy so much. You know, when you put two, one or two, two or three fights together, it helps you build back the momentum. I don't know that they have that. Right now, King Mo's competing at heavyweight. He's fighting Rampage. Phil Davis, um, I don't know what Phil Davis is doing right now. The fight wasn't close enough for a rematch. I guess he could fight Linton Vassell or maybe Ryan Bader when he comes right in. But do you really want to take your high-profile prof- new signing and throw him right in with McGeary? I mean, because if he loses, takes the shine off him. If he beats McGeary, well, then you've lost another legitimate contender immediately. You just neutralize him. And that's one less contender in a, in a division that right now it's then because of the, the amount of people in there. Yeah. So, and it's, 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 um, it's going to be pretty crazy. It's going to be pretty crazy because like they don't really have, they don't have that depth that they need in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Remember you, you, you're, you're, we were arguing about Neil, Neil Magny a couple of weeks ago. And the thing about it is if the UFC didn't have a middle class, like a lower tier, like a D level, C level, B minus, B plus, up and down the tier level of guys, Neil Magny would have never gone on a nine-fight winning streak. Matt Brown would have never gone on a nine- or seven-fight winning streak like they did and got the fans behind them and showcased what kind of finishing ability and heart and durability and passion and personality they have. The only reason they got to to showcase that is because they had multiple fights they had to win to get in position to be considered elite. But Bellator doesn't have that. And since they don't have the tournaments, there's not that constant activity and, and variety of opponents that legitimizes their contenders or their stars. So McGeary, his only chance to become a star was early on. Now we're going to see how good a job Bellator did because he's not going to have two or three fights. He's not going to have two or three fights or two or three opportunities to go at it again and again and again. He's going to get, he's going to beat this guy and he's going to have to beat be put in with a name. And if he loses that name, then he's set back even further. It's just a really, it's a really precarious spot they put themselves into because they've insisted on signing top top prospects and top name stars. They haven't had any other balance within their division. And it's been a problem that's been kicking them in the butt forever. I mean, that's why we're getting Strauss Pitbull four. I mean, like who in the USC has fought four times in like a two year period? Hmm. So, well, yeah, like this whole organization is, 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 and the thing is, Bellator, they're doing numbers, they're doing views, and they have the opportunity to really kind of be different within uh, the MMA sphere. But um, I'm concerned uh, what the, and the thing, I can't say I'm concerned about long-term viability because they've been around now for, how, has it been 10 years yet? I think it's been about 10 years now or close to. I think so. So, I mean, they're doing something right. The, pro- the problem I have with them is right now they're an alternative to the UFC because they put on alternative MMA. They can't ever become a true competitor until they're able to have divisions with enough fighters where you can look up and down the division and say, hey, we've got more than three or four guys who could compete at the highest level. 
until they get to that point, they can't really ever be competitors, if you understand what I'm saying, you know. Just because you can beat a really good team once a year doesn't make you a contender. You've got to be able to beat all the bad teams and compete with the good teams at least 50% of the time. If Bellator, 50% of their fighters can't survive in the UFC. They got three or four, but they have, like, divisions full of guys, and only three or four can even compete in the UFC. They can't be, they can't be a contender. They, they can't compete for the best organization in MMA until they round out their roster. You need a full roster. You can't just have stars. You need role players. You need superstars. You need stars. You need middlemen. All they got is stars and prospects, rookies and rookies and stars, and that's not going to cut it. Well, they are the only show on the deck for this weekend. So, what are you looking forward to from um, this Bellator card on? I think Saturday. Saturday was a Friday. One of the two. Uh, I mean, I'm just I'm just looking to see. I, I really want to just see. I just want to see that even if they don't have names, I want the matchmaking to be good enough where we're getting consistently good fights. Even if the fights aren't at the highest of levels, you understand what I'm saying? They're just good fights. Because, like, UFC cards will have some cards where you're like, oh, my God, this card's going to be terrible. But guys put out an above-average effort, and they compete, and they put they produce good fights. But it seems like in Bellator, either, either they just don't have good enough guys or the guys don't know how to match them because you might have one or two good fights and the rest of them are just essentially squash matches. And, and I'm hoping to see consistently good fights. Like, from everything that they put on TV, I want to see good competitive fights. I don't care what caliber guys are. I don't care if they're stars or not. But I want guys who are in competitive, tough fights where they showcase skill, experience, and talent. That's what I would like to see. You know what? I'm sitting here looking at Liam, Liam McGarry's slated fight, and I think he switched – fight opponents again. Now he's fighting Brett McDermott. Um, when I wrote about this fight, he was supposed to be fighting someone else. Um, this is crazy. Hold on a second. Let me look at this because he was supposed to be fighting Vladimir Filipich. Yeah, that's what I thought. Wow. Okay. So I got to scrap that whole damn piece. But um, <laughs> that that just being my night. Anyway, yeah, and and then when they when they have replacements, it's never somebody even comparable in the in the general range of the guy the guy they had originally set for the fight. It's always like a huge huge drop off. The UFC might go from top five to top fifteen. You Bellator goes from top three or four to just whoever, and that's the problem. That's always the problem. It, it happened with the with the Mitri, with the Mitrione Fedor fight. It happens in this fight. They just don't have enough manpower. You have to have manpower. You have to have enough bodies to throw at the problem so you can have solid, legitimate matchups. You can build fighters. You can refine fighters. You can season fighters. You can fill out your cards where people recognize the names and they know they're going to get a certain quality of fight. They don't have that. Every time you go to Bellator, you're looking out for the top two or three fights. You're not going for the rest of the card because you don't know who those guys are. Yeah, that's that's definitely... um... A viable point there. So while we're talking about it, then let's talk about the um, the biggest promotion on the block. You know, we got UFC 105 was this past weekend, and we saw Derek Lewis get yet another win. Um, this one was a little bit more compelling because he um, he was definitely hurt um, early in the bout, and he had to basically do a come from behind win here. So talk to me about this main event first and foremost. What were some of your thoughts coming out of of this show? My first thought was Travis Brown actually looked like the Travis Brown that was 
considered a potential uh, heavyweight champion. He was using his range. He was using his athleticism. He's using his kicks. He was fighting with some kind of discipline and control. The, pro the problem was Travis Brown has some key technical flaws. The way he throws his right hand, for one, he goes off balance, leans into it, which is what led to him getting knocked out by Lewis. Because when Lewis, Lewis throws hard, but if you're leaning into a punch and somebody's throwing full power, that's almost a guaranteed KO right there. And also, Travis Brown made the mistake that Travis Brown often makes. He doesn't always fight smart. He can, he's, he's got the athleticism and the range and the experience and the skill set, especially on the feet, to fight a very controlled, very defensively responsible and deliberate fight style. But he does not do that. When in that fight, he gave that fight away by trying to get greedy and go in for head kicks and doing all sorts of stuff. He could have stayed at range, worked his angles, worked his footwork, and just front kicked Derek Lewis to death. Every time he threw it, Lewis had no answer for it. Lewis tried to, count, tried to counter, but it was too much distance between it. The only reason it started becoming a problem for him is because he gave up that range. He gave up that distance trying to get greedy and trying to finish Lewis. He could have just picked his spots, controlled them, round, round three, late round three, early round four, could have closed the door on him. But he got greedy and tried to go for a finish. He kind of, and he does that often. He, he'll, he'll go for a simple jab, could win in the fight. He sticks to his jab, but he's going to try and hit you with a Superman punch. The front kick to the body, could win on the fight, but he's going to try to do a, a, a head kick. He's going to try to do a spinning back fist. He's just not going to stay disciplined and do what it takes to win the fight. And he gave the fight away, in my opinion. Derek Lewis, it's like I said about him before, he's athletic, he's big, he's strong, he hits hard, and he's aggressive. But he has real holes as far as his overall game, considering his grappling, his wrestling, and his stand-up. He's a dynamic hitter. He generates a lot of force. He closes a lot of distance. When he gets in on you, he can do a huge amount of damage. But there's weaknesses in his footwork. There's weaknesses in his setups. And when it comes to the wrestling and the ground game, there's a whole lot of weaknesses in it. He's not very good in those areas. He's like the best, worst prospect in heavyweight MMA because he can do all these huge things, but there's so many ways to beat him. There's so many ways to put him in bad spots and he's routinely been put in bad spots in almost every fight in the last three or four fights. He's routinely been put in bad spots by guys who shouldn't have been able to do that to him. And, and, and I was listening to a show that earlier today and they were talking about the move to Edmonds um, to train there. Well, do you think that that right there has had like a really bad impact on uh, Brown's career? Well, the thing is, the, the problem with Edmund is, I've said this, Edmund's not a terrible coach. He's not an idiot. He's not a moron. The thing with Edmund is he's a guy who has a specialty as far as his skill set, and he's not great at that specialty. He's a striking guy, but he, he limits himself mostly to a lot of the boxing aspects of it. Certain aspects of Travis Brown's game improved under Edmund. His counterpunching got a little bit sharper. He had a bit of a jab. He learned how to work at range a little bit better. But the thing is, he's got rid of all the other tools that that would have enhanced. Like, Travis Brown with a steady jab and a little bit more shit form in his punches, make, that makes his kicks that much more effective. That creates lanes for his kicks. His kicks create lanes for his punches. But the fact of the matter is he focused so much on that, he started getting away from takedowns, getting away from jumping knees, getting away from leg kicks, head kicks, front kicks. He started throwing out 75% of what he could do and focusing on this 25%. And that 25%, Edmund wasn't good enough, a good enough teacher, and Travis Brown did not have enough technical ability or time to develop the technical ability to win based off those tools, the 25% of weapons that he was using. He needed the full skill set. 
in this fight, he started. He got back to using the full skill set. And when he started using the full skill set, you see how dangerous he can be. But when you throw out 75% of your skills and focus on 25% that you're not all that good at, you're going to get beat repeatedly. And that's what happened. It wasn't that he forgot how to fight. He was just being taught in a manner that didn't build on his skills. Edmund broke the cardinal rule of being a coach. Like Marcus Davis was telling us, you make someone into the best version of themselves. You don't change them. You don't tear everything down. You see the good things they do, the positives. You try to create you try to minimize the holes and you try to build from there. What he did was throw everything out that Greg Jackson did and focus on his way of doing, thing, doing things. And his, his way of teaching wasn't good enough. And Travis Brown was not good enough at, at what he learned to st stay competitive as a heavyweight in the UFC. Some great breakdown there, man. Um, some great insight on, oh, yeah, on that guy there. One more thing. I, I, I'm really hard on, on corners. Derek Lewis's corner actually told him exactly what he needed to do. Now, I still think Travis Brown lost the fight more than Derek Lewis won it, but his corner said, you're letting him keep you at the edge of his kicks. You're backing up. You've got to bite down, and you've got to go after him. You've got to create pressure. You've got to throw some heat. And when he started throwing heat and creating pressure and not be being defensive and acting hurt, he forced – he made Travis Brown feel like he had to close the show. He made him feel like with the pressure he was putting on him that Travis had to fire back with him. And once Travis Brown got into a firefight, the fight went all downhill. When the fight was at range and it was a movement and a, and a technical distance fight, Travis Brown was eating them up. The minute it started getting into boxing range and mid in the middle kick range, Travis Brown started falling apart, started getting countered, started getting thrown around, started getting pinned up against the fence, started getting smacked around and beat up. So his corner told him the adjustment he made, and Derek Lewis had to go out and do it. But his corner told him everything he should have done, and I liked – and I have to give credit to that because I'm always banging on these corners about the poor direction they give him. And he gave him excellent direction. And Derek Lewis executed. And that pressure is what made Travis Brown fall apart. When he, when he couldn't control things and he wasn't dictating, he started getting wild, started getting crazy. And then eventually he got taken out. And fall apart is the, is the right term there. Um, so we got, a, we got a big win for Derek Lewis. And, man, he's someone that fans are getting behind. He's um, becoming more and more popular every day. I'm sure you're aware of his antics on um, social media. And people are cracking up at, the, uh, at, the, at nearly everything that he does. So what are your thoughts on, um, on him and his um, long-term viability? I think he's a great talent. I don't think he's a great fighter yet. But the thing about it is he has personality. He has a sense that he's self-deprecating. He doesn't take himself too seriously. He seems to shoot straight with the fans. He has an exciting style. So he has the potential to become a real star and to really bring a lot of people in from different demographics and people from who might not appreciate some of the more wrestling-heavy type, type fighters or the more you know, oh, I'm, I'm here to fight, I'm here to win, I want it worse than everybody. He, he says similar things to other guys, but he has a sense of humor about himself. He has a sense of humor about situations, and he's willing to say things, he's willing to say things that are going to draw eyes and attention to him, which a lot of fighters don't want to do. So as far as his personality and the way he, how active he is as a fighter and on social media, I have nothing but respect for him because he's doing what it takes to expand his brand, to make himself familiar to the fans and make fans want to see him and want to hear his interviews want to see his fights as far as his technical ability i still feel like he's got a lot of holes it's just heavyweight's a real thin division so he's got to have a lot of up and he's got that much power so he has a lot of room for error he has a lot of margin for error because he can knock anybody out with one shot and a lot of the guys he's facing 
A, aren't the caliber of athlete he, he is, and B, don't have the defensive and counter skills to, to make him pay for the mistakes he's making. Travis Brown had it. Um, Vincent uh, Francis Nagano, he might. I still don't know if he can take a good enough punch, but there's very few heavyweights who can really test him and really put him in a bad spot and really take advantage of the bad spots that he has or the weak spots in his game. So, I mean, he, he's a potential superstar as far as I'm concerned, and a lot of people are getting on the bandwagon. I'm not the biggest fan of his, but I'm a fan of his work ethic. I'm a fan of, of the fact that he takes advantage of every opportunity he has to, um, to sell himself and sell what he can do. Still there? Did you cut out? Yes. No, I just finished. Hello? Did you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? Now. I can hear you now. I'm just saying I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of what he does and how he presents himself in the work ethic of fighting so often and making a point to establish his brand on social media and establish his brand in the UFC. He's doing what a lot of fighters don't do, but he's still very technically limited and he's very strategically limited because of his technical limitations. And I think he has a lot of holes. If he was in any division except for heavyweight, I don't know that he goes on this kind of street, but heavyweight is very thin. There's not a lot of top end athletes and there's not even a lot of top skilled fighters. So, He's he's in the perfect division and he he has superstar potential as far as I'm concerned. Say that last part one more time. That he has superstar potential as far as I'm concerned. And that's the thing is like especially if he, if he keeps winning. Um and I and I'm not going to lie, I'm I'm kind of wishing that he does keep winning um uh, because just because he he's such an entertaining aspect to the heavyweight division um especially since that division has kind of always been boring to me in a sense. You know, I've always, I've, I've long stood by that. I cannot, I have a hard time watching heavyweights fight sometimes. Everyone's expecting a big, huge knockout, but it just doesn't um, happen like that. So it, it yeah. makes it a little bit unbearable for me to watch. Sometimes the fights aren't any more boring than other, other weights. The thing is those guys, most of the heavyweights don't know how to sell their fights. Junior DeSantos, English is in his first language. It's hard for him to, talk trash, and it's not his style either, to get the fans into it. Frank Mir was a very smart, had a charismatic guy, but he was always getting beat up so much, it was hard to take him seriously past a certain point. Cain Velasquez, as good as he is, is a boring interview and isn't a particularly exciting fighter either. Not really, not in the, not the way that people would expect for a heavyweight. Derek Lewis doesn't take himself very seriously. He's willing to say controversial things. He's willing to reach out to the fans and engage them, and he's willing to... He's, he's, he's flawed enough that every fight he has is exciting. You know, if he was a more, more well-rounded fighter, he wouldn't be put in those positions. But since he's so flawed, every fight he has is dangerous. Every fight he could lose, and then he shows heart or drive or aggression that pulls the fight out. So you're always guaranteed to see something competitive and something exciting because of the limitations he has within his own training styles, his own technical abilities, and even some, and to his physical abilities for an extent. I mean, his chin's not great. His durability is not great. He, he's been knocked out before. He's been beat up before. We've seen it recently. So it's like every fight is must-see must see because you don't know what's going to happen. He's not invincible. He's flawed technically. He's flawed, he's flawed physically. You're always going to get a very good action and exciting fight. And if he wins, you know you're going to get a great interview afterwards. And that's definitely true. That's, that's that's definitely true because um he is one hell of an interview and he's one hell of a um of a class a class clown basically for that um let's look at for the let's look at the rest of the card because I think that overall this was a pretty interesting card because um it has some uh 
interesting uh, outcomes. Excuse me. Let me look at. Let me pull up the. Um, let me pull up the fight card itself. Give me one second here. I don't want to talk about Johnny Hendricks and, and Hector Lombard. Um, you want to talk about that? I don't want to talk about them two guys. <laughs> hey, I, I'm here. Whatever the subject is, I'm here to talk about it. Go ahead and talk about it, man. Tell me what you think. <laughs> well, I mean, the only thing I was happy about is my main concern. This is the best Johnny Hendricks I've seen in a while. I think the weight clap, the move up in weight made him able to be busier on his feet. His defensive footwork was a lot better. His timing was better. He put he had more volume. He set up his strikes more. He put more of his strikes together. He just he looked like he looked like a return to form to the guy we has we hadn't seen since uh, the the fight with Robbie Lawler. Um, the win against Lombard is kind of a illusion because Lombard is not a big middleweight. He's he's a short squatty guy. The good point about it beating Lombard is not many guys are going to have faster hands, be more explosive, and even at his small size, Lombard is probably one of the bigger hitting middleweights in the UFC. The problem is when Johnny faces a guy who's got more size, who's got more length, and he can kind of lean on him and he can't exchange with, or he can't just back off with a quick combination or heavy kicks or heavy punches where he's going to have to work. In my opinion, what we're going to have to see from Johnny Hendricks is a lot more of what we saw of him versus Lombard. He's going to have to be on his P's and Q's defensively. He's going to have to be very mobile, cutting angles and circling. And he's going to have to be very sharp and very busy with his hands, knees, and his kicks. He's going to have to use work rate, distance management, and footwork to balance out the disadvantages and size, weight, and reach that he's going to be facing when he faces the better middleweights. I think he can put some wins together in middleweight. I don't know if he beats the elite guys in middleweight, but I know he can put some wins together in middleweight. You don't think he can put some wins together? I mean, like, what is his um... – I mean, he, he could probably be – What is his feeling? He could be Vitor Belfort right now. I think he could fight. He could have a rematch with Kelvin Gastelum. That'd be a pretty good fight for him, I think, as well. Even somebody like Chris Camozzi and some of the other guys. There's guys he could beat, in my opinion. It's just a matter of, you know, like I said, it's a matter of him fighting to the full. Him using all his skill sets and fighting a very disciplined and smart fight. He won't have the margin for error because he's facing guys who are bigger who can handle the power. He's not going to just be able to manhandle guys because the guys are going to be bigger and stronger guys. He's going to have to fight a little bit harder for those takedowns. He's going to have to fight a little bit harder for control. When he lands shots on guys, they're not just going to go away like they did at welterweight. It's going to have to be more of a battle. So, like I said, he can he can have wins. He can get wins. He's just going to have to be fighting in a more disciplined and technical manner than he had to at, light, at welterweight where he could just blow through guys. So where he can just blow through guys, huh? Yeah, I mean, that's what he was doing up until the fact he had weight problems. Every guy he hit stayed hit. Every guy he put hands on went down. Once his weight, once he started having the weight issues and he didn't have that explosiveness and he was kind of started getting a little sluggish and couldn't put out any any sort of real work rate, that's when he started having the problems. But when he was able to make the weight and he was healthy and he was fresh, he was explosive, he was quick, his volume was up, his takedowns were sharp. He used the, fake, the takedowns to set up the hands or he'd use the hands to set up the takedowns. He just had a lot of versatility in his game and a lot of freedom because he had the conditioning and he had the athleticism to do it. Once he started having the weight problems, that athleticism seemed to disappear, and so did his conditioning. He couldn't box, he couldn't kickbox and wrestle. He didn't have the stamina to do it. He would just kickbox or he would just wrestle. He couldn't mix it together. The, the guy we saw who beat, Johnny, who beat Hector Lumbar, that guy would have beat Neil Magny. That guy might have given Stephen Thompson some work. 
but he he's not that guy anymore at welterweight to be that guy he's yeah he definitely really struggled um in that weight class there um are we let me see so i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of move on from that fight there um because there's some other things i wanted to look at gavin tucker Tell me what your thoughts are on, on him. I'm hearing some good things about, about Gavin. He had a great performance against um, Sam Cecilia and a pretty strong UFC d- debut there. What do you think this 45-pounder um, is going to be able to do? And what's, where's his ceiling at? Because he definitely looked really good in this debut on Saturday. I, I think he's a, he's, he seems like a very good fighter. He's athletic. He's he's a seems to be a top t- top-end tier fighter. He's got athleticism, quick feet, quick hands. He's got good timing and, and good sense of distance, and he seems to be—he seems to throw sharp, technical shots. He gets in on—he comes in on angles. He exits on angles. He uses the feints. He uses the full skill set on his feet, and he's very good at leading and/or countering. The only thing about it is, the only reason I don't know how good he really is is because he got a real favorable matchup. Sam Cecilia—I mean, we already know his coach isn't the most technically technically advanced coach, especially on the feet. He's the guy who said body you just walk through body shots and leg kicks. So you know what kind of training he's getting on the feet. And secondly, Cecilia's been very limited as a fighter. He's really only been a one armed fighter. He has his hook and maybe a overhand punches, but that's all he's really ever had as a fighter. He doesn't have really good footwork. He doesn't really have good feints. He doesn't really use jabs. He's not a good counter guy. He doesn't throw a lot of volume. He's just a guy who kind of stalks you it lands big shots. He stands in front of you and hopes to create exchanges where he can finish you with his power. And hopefully his chin holds up and yours doesn't. So when you, you have a guy like Tucker with his level of craft and the finer points of the striking game against a guy like Cecilia, it's going to be a highlight reel fight. It's going to be, it's like a showcase fight because Cecilia has the power, but he doesn't have anywhere near the skills, the seasoning or the, or the technical awareness to challenge him on any level. And that's what happened. I mean, Cecilia was like landing one shot per round. He couldn't do anything with them because he didn't have the technical skills. And even before the fight, oh, I want this fight. He's going to stand on the feet. I'm going to just run him over. You can't run over a guy who, who faints and comes in and, and exits it out on angles. You have to cut the angles off. You have to faint him. You have to have a jab to set up your strikes. You have to pressure him with your feet to make him throw something so you can counter it. He doesn't have any of those tools in his game. So it was essentially, it was easy work for him. It's like when Dillashaw fought Lineker. That was the best matchup you could ever give Dillashaw. A guy who can't grapple, a guy who can't wrestle, and is wild on the feet. What's a guy with Dillashaw's level of technical skill on the feet going to do to a guy like that? And it's essentially the same thing with Cecilia. It was just the guy was outclassed. So I don't know how good Tucker is because I haven't seen him against a guy who can challenge him on any of those fronts. Cecilia didn't have anything for him except for power. And, and so he he couldn't show us anything. He showed us a bunch of skills, but I don't know how well he shows those skills under duress against a guy who we can't dictate range and distance and and timing with. Yeah, that's um that's some good breakdowns there. So what would you do with him next? Because he's like a viable candidate for someone that you kind of build up very slowly. Um, it depends on how they want to go. They really want to build him up slowly and be careful. They could try and put him in against Alex Caceres. I know Caceres is coming off a loss, but Caceres is a guy who's got some skill on the feet, who's got athleticism and has at least a good all-round game. Not great at wrestling, not great at grappling, but he's got a, a functionally effective enough game so that he could, we could see how good Tucker is on the feet. We could see how precise he is on the feet. We could see if he can handle it when he has a guy who's not right there to be hit or a guy who's got enough length to fight Gavin at a range that maybe 
to attack Gavin at the range that he's usually safe at. I think Caceres would be a good matchup. I don't, I don't, I don't know if you want to put him in with just anybody. You want a guy who's going to, who's going to kind of challenge him in certain skills, but maybe not be good enough to beat him or good enough. If Gavin Tucker is a fraud. And I think that Alex Caceres would be probably the, the fight I would pick for. I don't know that I put him in with a, a Jeremy Stevens as of yet, even though the, 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 the approach he used against Cecilia works against Jeremy Stevens in a lot of ways because Stevens is a guy who loads up, doesn't have the greatest footwork, and doesn't have a lot of the subtle nuance to his game that allows you to be effective on an offensive level. So Jeremy Stevens could be a good matchup, but he's a little bit too experienced. I'd probably go with somebody like Alex Caceres right, off, right now. I think Alex Caceres, um, trying to think of somebody else. I don't think Burrell. Philip Nover was still fighting. Maybe putting him, putting him in with him, Rick Glenn possibly. You know, I mean, you want to bring him along slow so he has a time to really kind of get adjusted to being the UFC and we can, we can see what he has to offer and see if there's any changes his camp needs to make to compete at this level. So those are only two guys I would think. Maybe Rick Glenn or Alex Caceres right now. I guess if you want to try it, Jason Knight might be a good fight. But I think Alex Caceres is a more favorable matchup that might pose a little pose some more challenges on the feet than uh, Cecilia did. Okay, I can get with you on that there, man. I think that's, that's some pretty good insight in what, how the UFC should kind of move him along in the future. We got a couple other people I want to look at for this fight here, too, um, from this night of fights. Elias Theodoro continues winning. He continues winning. I think um, we laugh. You know, we often pick, pick on this guy, talk about his hair, and, and laugh and joke. But he's... Um, He's putting together quite a streak here. He is five and one in his last uh, six, and he's he's looking good. What do you think about this guy here? How far is he going to go at um in this at 185 pounds? Uh, he's a good athlete. He's got a look. He seems to have a little bit of a sense of humor. I could see him kind of getting a bit of a name for himself and getting some getting getting a little bit of a burn moving forward as a fighter. My problem with him is. He, he seems like a good grappler, a, a good wrestler, but his striking is just if he if he wasn't the athlete that he is, his striking wouldn't be very wouldn't be very effective at all in my regards. I mean, it just he he can put single techniques together, but he doesn't really throw combinations great. He doesn't really set things up very well. His boxing seems to be a little suspect. His kickboxing is only okay as far as as far as as far as what I've seen. It's a lot of him being willing to throw throw hard and throw a lot and him not being afraid to get hit. I don't personally think that he's the most technical guy on the feet. And um, as good an athlete as he is, he's not like a Yoel Romero type athlete. He's not the kind of guy who can um, just walk through you with shots or just dominate you in the clinch and throw you left and right and take you down left and right. But um, I think he's got some potential. He just has some work to do. He's got, he's got to do a better job between grappling, wrestling, and striking. He, he's just... He, he gets too stuck in doing one or the other. He can't consistently transition effectively through all the ranges or not effectively enough for my, my liking. I, I really think that he, he has some star potential. And um, I, think he, I, think, I think at some point maybe if he won his next fight or Johnny Hendricks won his next fight or maybe in his next fight, I could see him and Johnny Hendricks being a good fight. Johnny Hendricks, huh? Yeah, I mean, he's, big, he's probably bigger and stronger than Hendricks. But their the gap in their in their striking skill set is beyond ridiculous. You know, I mean, Hendricks is a much is much better on the feet. Hector Lombard is much better on the feet than uh, than um, Elias is, 
And I think that's an area that, that he could be exposed in against those kind of guys. If he beats a guy like Johnny Hendricks, even though he's new to the, to the middleweight division, Johnny Hendricks is still a former champion. He's still considered one of the better talents to come through MMA, and he's a name. You know, he beats him. That gets him a little bit more cachet. That gets him a little bit more burn. If Johnny Hendricks beat Elias, then that's beating a guy who's on a win streak, who's considered one of the better athletes, and a guy who's shown himself to be one of the better, um, you know, wrestlers and grapplers in, well, not in division, but the young prospects, future contenders. So it'd be a win-win for both either way, you know. If he beats Hendricks, that, sh that shows us something. Hendricks beats him, that shows us something. Okay. Then we also have to take a look at um, our girl, Sarah McMahon, who became the first woman to ever, I think one of the first, either the first woman or the first person to ever have two head and arm choke finishes. Um, she got her stoppage over, or excuse me, arm, arm, head and arm choke, arm triangle, same damn thing. When she stopped um, Gina Mazanay on Saturday, do you think Sarah kind of fights her way back into um, the title picture? I think she can. I don't think that fight was enough for her to demand a title shot. I mean, she beat Davis, who hadn't fought in, in a long time. She beat Mazanay, who was, I mean, she's a good fighter, but she's not, she's not in Sarah's class athletically or in regards to skill set, especially as goes to on the ground. It, it's just not competitive on, on that level. So I don't think those two fights were enough for her to demand a title shot. I mean, the win over Davis was impressive because she, she finished her, and Davis is a very good fighter. But, you know, Davis hadn't fought in, in, in quite – she'd only had one fight, and that she'd been out of the UFC for quite a bit due to her pregnancy. So that fight didn't carry quite as much weight for me. It was impressive. It was, it was legit. But it wasn't the kind of fight that I think just vaults her up the ranks. I think McMahon needs to maybe fight a Raquel Pennington, maybe uh, even Juliana Pena, maybe fight somebody like her to, to really cement herself, somebody moving into the next stage of being a contender. But, I mean, I was very impressed. She's actually been more, instead of just fighting for control and holding girls down to decision, she's actually using her control and her her uh, her top control and her physicality to, to finish now. And she didn't used to do that. She would just take someone down and hold them and kind of pepper them with shots and not try to finish. Now it seems like she's, instead of competing in MMA, it seems like she's actually fighting MMA. The, the switch seems to have flipped in her head. And now you're getting different results. You're seeing her be more aggressive. You're seeing her be more deliberate. And you're seeing her looking for finishes instead of just looking for control. And that's been the biggest difference I've seen in there. So looking at the way the women's division is kind of shaping up, would she benefit from moving to um, 145 pounds? Uh, I could see her there. I mean, if she fought the right fight, honestly, she could be Holly Holm if she was disciplined about it. And I already know she could be Jermaine Durandy, Randomy. She she crush her. I honestly, I mean, Randomy's good on the counter and stuff. But if she just works her jab and kind of is patient about it, the minute she she could she could take her down. And once she gets her down, I mean, if Holly Holmes able to to get entries in on your hips, she just can't finish. Sarah McMahon gets an entry, you're going down. And when she gets on top of you, she's most likely going to finish because because Randomy isn't isn't a good defensive or offensive or counter grappler. And she's not a great wrestler either. So I think I think McMahon could beat either one of them. And she could compete in the 45. She's big enough. But I don't know that she wants to wait long enough to do so. She might just want to fight as it is now. Yeah, that, that's very true. And I think that – but I will say, if she moved the 45, I could see her get, being fast-tracked to a title shot there. 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, she had a better chance of getting a four. In fact, I, I mean, I might have been more more interested in a Holly Holm Sarah McMahon fight or a, or Jermaine Durandamy Sarah McMahon fight than a Holly Holm or and Durandamy fighting at featherweight. To be honest, I, I might have been more 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 into that kind of fight. I still think she beats either one of the. She can beat either one of them. It'd be hard for her to get a rematch at bantamweight because of the way that Amanda Nunes dispatched her so easily and so quickly. Mm-hmm. I can definitely get with you on on that analysis there. Another person I want to talk about is Santiago, or excuse me, Santiago Ponzinibbio. Um, a lot of people are talking about him and his performance on Saturday as well when he got that decision or over Nordine Talib. Uh, this this is a guy who, again, he's another one of those guys who got off to a good start in the UFC. He's gone six and two. Um, since coming in, and he's had two losses to two good guys in Ryan LaFleur and Lorenz Larkin. So does that kind of give you a heads up of just how far this guy may really go at 170? Or is he's only 30 years old, so can we still see some continued growth in his uh, development? I mean, I don't know his mindset, but if he has the right mindset, yeah, you can see continued growth and development. He's got athleticism. He's, he's got a... a, a um, a good solid striking game and, and he seems to have i'm not too sure on his wrestling i don't think his wrestling is particularly great but in his grappling probably is more functional than anything else but he's got enough athleticism size and aggression to beat a lot of guys the problem is the two best guys he's faced when the athleticism advantage wasn't hu- huge in his favor is when he um essentially got beat the worst and even in this fight with nordine i, I really felt talib kind of gave the fight away I feel like he had a recipe for winning the fight and Ponzinibbio made a slight adjustment, but a lot of his adjustment was based off Tlaib not doing the things he needed to do to win. He wasn't setting up his kicks. He was throwing naked low kicks, naked high kicks, naked body kicks. He was throwing either kicks or punches. He wasn't throwing kick and punch combinations. He made himself predictable and he was he's not a big enough hitter and he's not a dynamic enough athlete to get away with being a predictable guy, kind of telegraphing what he's going to do. And that's what happened. He he got away. He was winning the first round, and then he got he totally got away from it when Ponzinibbio started putting shots together, putting a little bit of pressure on him. He he wouldn't he wouldn't up his intensity. He wouldn't up his volume. He started getting very predictable. He started coming in a straight lines, backing up a straight line, standing in front of him. And when you're facing a guy with better athleticism, who's who's a more active striker you're going to get overwhelmed. You're going to get beat to the punch. You're going to get overwhelmed. And that's exactly what happened. He just consistently got beat to the punch. It was getting roughed up. And then towards the end of the fight, he started using his hands instead of the kicks again. He started throwing kick punch combinations and then he started being effective. He started using his jab a little bit and started being effective, but he didn't do that until like the last minute of the third round after the fight had essentially been decided because he'd taken so much abuse. Yeah, he did so, definitely take a, a lot of um, abuse there. I need to see Ponzinibbio beat the kind of guys he's been losing to, because the guys the guys he's been beating so far are the guys he's always beat, a certain tier, a certain athletic and technical tier of fighter. I need to see him beat the next level of a fighter, the next level of athlete. That's when I know that he's turned the corner, because maybe he maybe he he could in fact be exactly what we see him being right now. This might be all this to him, and if he's in, because every time he's faced guys with comparable skill sets and ability, he hasn't fared as well. Against these type of guys, he he wins and he wins handily. But against the other kind of guys, he doesn't ever look as good. And so I need to see him start beating those kind of guys before I I can buy into him really rounding himself out into a certain caliber of fighter. 
Yeah, that's definitely some interesting um, outlooks there. One last person I would like to talk about from Saturday, and that's that dude, Paul Felder, who looked good. Um, he looked good in, in his win on Saturday. Um, he looked like he's definitely growing. Actually, I want to talk about one other person, too, or one other fight, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, but I like how Paul's kind of taking a slow approach to getting back um, – into a point of importance within the division. I definitely feel like he jumped in there way too, um, way too early. And when he went from, you know, Danny Castillo to Edson Barbosa, I think that was such a huge jump. And then we know about that split decision lost to Ross, Ross Pearson, but, um, I like how he's kind of turning it around and moving at a slower pace with some of the fights that, that he's taken at 31 years of age. You know, he, we usually see athletic primes last until about like, you know, fighters like 33, 35, somewhere within that age range. Um, what is Paul Felder's ceiling? How far is he going to get before it's uh, too late? The biggest thing I, I like about Paul Felder is that he's actually treating, and I talk about this all the time on the show, he's actually treating the sport like it's a profession, like it's his job. A lot of guys, when they lose a fight, they try to find the biggest name they can get into so they can jump right back into contendership where they can keep the hype train going. Sometimes that's not always the best thing to do. Sometimes it's better to come up slow against guys who you can work on your new tools with because doing them in training and working on training is fine, but you have to have the opportunity to use them under live fire. That's where you get you perfect them so that when you're facing a guy who put you in bad spots, instead of going back to the old dependable, you go back to the new stuff you've been working on. And um, that's what he's doing. And secondly, I like the fact that he's taken control of his career. And instead of sitting there and saying, I'm just going to stay with this same camp, I'm going to stay with these same people. He's saying, I'm the guy out there fighting. My career is short enough as it is. I'm going to start making some very, very honest. I'm going to take a very honest look at myself where I'm coming up short. And I'm going to start making adjustments so I can move forward in my career. And that's what he did. He went to a different camp with a different outlook, with a different point of emphasis as far as striking and their overall approach to MMA. And you saw the results. He looked a lot more controlled. He looked a lot more precise. And in some of his fights earlier, he used to he was showing a wide variety of strikes, whether it's punches, knees, elbows, and he kind of got away from that a little bit. He started doing the high, flashy stuff and the fancy stuff and the big offense, but he wasn't doing a lot of the subtle, the subtle layered technical things that you expect from a guy who's got his pedigree and has his his level of athleticism. He started doing them. And that's what that that's what determined the fight. When that guy started taking over the fight, Felder started switching it up. He started sewing. He started he started setting up his strikes differently. He started sequencing his strikes differently. He started using different counters instead of boxing counters. He used Muay Thai counters in certain ranges instead of using Muay Thai. He used straight kickboxing instead of using straight kickboxing. He mixed in some boxing with his Muay Thai. He used variations to set things up and maximize their effectiveness. And that's what it took for him to win. And he got that from having a change in camp. Most guys get really stuck on the loyalty aspect of it, and I'm big on that. I get the loyalty, but it's your career. And if you're not doing the things necessary to keep yourself competitive, eventually when you start losing or you're no longer a UFC fighter or you have to retire, that camp still goes on. So you have to do what's best for you short-term and long-term for your health and for your technical progression, and that's what he did. And that's the biggest, that's the biggest thing I took from him, that he was willing to uproot everything and go a whole different route to get to the result that he wanted to get to. And most fighters aren't willing to do that nowadays. 
Yeah, I definitely like. I definitely agree with you. He is really taking this as a profession, and watching him, you know, he really, he, I think he's grown since coming in to the UFC. He's someone that I've enjoyed watching. You know, his fights are going to be violent, and he's looking to go in there and not only win but finish guys. So, um, I hope he he has much success, and I think that he's really kind of handling this in the right way. Um, the last he's, person he's in a tough division, though. That's a division where you go on a seven-fight winning streak, and you might just barely scratch the top fifteen. Isn't that stupid? That's man, that's so ridiculous. Um, I'm like Bellator, you win one and you're up for a title fight. So. Yep, yeah. If he was in Bell, I mean, I'm serious. Like, if I don't know how many fights he has left on his contract, but if, man, if he was in Bellator, that would be um, he would be right up there facing. I, I would love to see him and Michael Chandler go. Yeah, it'd be a good fight. It, I'm not sure how if his defensive wrestling is good enough, but uh, Chandler takes a lot of risk on the feet, so if he's willing to exchange a little bit. Felder could catch him. Felder, Felder's good enough to catch him. And last fight I wanted to talk about, Ronda Marcos and Carla Esparza. Uh, split decision. A lot of people had it for Esparza. I saw, um, I looked at MMA decisions, and I think of the 19 media members um, that looked at the fight, I think all but 15 of them had it for um, had it for Carla. What were your thoughts on this fight here? I thought the fight could have gone either way. Before the fight, my whole question was, Randall Marcos is athletically superior, a broad enough skill set and aggression and activity where she should she should really be able to walk through a lot of people, but her fight IQ is terrible. She burns a lot of energy running around. She burns a lot of energy with wild strikes and not setting things up and just exploding into things and exploding out of things and often puts herself in terrible positions where she gets finished or, or outworked or outpositioned and just loses loses decisions or gets finished as a result of it. Carla Esparza is the biggest issue. Is she's professional. She's very well prepared. But the thing is, A, technically, she's, she's limited. She's super limited technically. And physically, she's even more limited. It's like Carla Esparza fights in a manner that Juliana Pena and Ronda Rousey fight in. It's fact in that she's only functionally effective with her striking. A lot of her success is based off her ability and the threat of her taking you down or tying you up and, and, and leaning on you and grinding on you and beating you up. The difference is Juliana Pena and Ronda Rousey are top-tier athletes. Ronda Rousey is Ronda Rousey. Juliana Pena is like a middle-class version of Ronda Rousey. And Carla Esparza is like a lower middle-class version of Ronda Rousey. They all have a grappling-based fighting, but one of them, two of them have top in world level ability and the other one is like an average athlete so she can't force the fight into the ranges she wants because with her limited striking she doesn't have the power explosiveness to do the damage or to close the distance and even with her her grappling her wrestling she's not a dynamic enough athlete where she can just explode into takedowns put you on your back and just control you carla isn't a big isn't a big person for her division for one she's not incredibly strong for two and three, she's not really explosive or mobile where she can just explode and, and take you down left and right and control you left and right. She just is, she's just not that kind of person. So a lot of the fight came down to exposing the limitations of Carla Esparza. And the limitations of Carla Esparza is if you can control the distance, if you come in with a lowered stance and you kind of pick her apart a distance and you can get her in exchanges, you're going to beat her because she doesn't have a lot of reach. She's not committed to her striking. She'll strike when she gets her hands on you. She'll strike if you know you're going to back up in a straight line. She'll strike if she knows she can take you down. But when those things aren't guarantees, she can't control you for sure. She can't take you down clean all the time. She won't commit. There were times where random markers had it in range and all Carla had to do was slip the jab 
and come in, but she wouldn't slip it. Or Carla could have thrown a double jab and worked her way in, but she wouldn't do it because she was getting countered and she she was gun shy. She wouldn't commit to countering. She wouldn't commit to putting offense on. She wouldn't commit to punching herself in the range to really get to random Marcus's hits consistently. She was waiting until Marcus made a mistake and enabled her to take her down. She wasn't ever trying to initiate takedown, put volume on her, or put pressure on her. Um, in my opinion, Carla Sparza, she's still a talent, but the thing is, I don't think she's big enough or athletic enough at this weight where she's going to be able to compete with a newer breed of people. She went a five-round decision with Beck Rawling at the time when Beck Rawling couldn't grapple worth a damn. And she couldn't finish her. She couldn't control her. Rawling kept getting up. She couldn't submit her. Rawling would work her way to feed, beat her up for a little bit, and then she would take her down. But the girl she's beat on the way to be to becoming the UFC champion when she was, she can't beat Angela Hill now. Angela Hill would kill her right now. She can't beat Rose Namajunas right now. Rose Namajunas would beat her within an inch of a life right now. I don't know that she beats Beck Rawling right now. I mean, Rawling would get tired, maybe, but there's a good chance that Beck Rawling, Beck Rawling starches her because Esparza is not particularly tough, and she doesn't make adjustments very well. She has a very limited game plan, and she's just very good about sticking to it and taking advantage of the holes in other people's games as far as footwork, ability to put punches together, ability to use deliberate offense. If you can use deliberate offense and control the range, you're going to beat her to the punch every time. She's going to back up in a straight line. No, she's going to shoot. If you have a comparable guard or you can get into scrambles with her, she's not big or strong enough to just muscle you. I mean, Randa Marcus got her in some very difficult positions now in that fight. And it wasn't really hard for her either. She didn't have, she didn't dominate Randa Marcus any time on the ground. And on the feet, it was pretty much even. Marcus could have done more. She could have been more efficient. She could have been more technical. She could have doubled up her jab. She could have used a front kick to the body. She could have pushed Carla back with a jab and forced Carla to shoot and then sprawl her out and create scarables. There's lots of things she could have done that she didn't do. But Carla Esparza didn't have the skill set and didn't have the will necessary to take advantage of the mistakes that Marcus made. Carla Sparza fights like a Ronda Rousey with a limited skill set. What she needs to do is fight more like a Misha Tate, show some adaptability and show some mental and physical toughness that's going to allow her to grind people out. But she won't do the things it takes for her to win that fight. She, it it could have went either way, but she could have closed the door on the fight if she would have stood her ground and countered when Marcus came in high with her chin high, throwing wide shots. She could have took a half step back, stood her ground, right, ran her right into her right hand, ran her right into the left hook to the body, right hand to the top. She didn't do that. She backed all the way across the cage and got beat up. She, she, she wasn't getting clean takedowns. She wasn't letting her hands go. She was just standing there waiting, 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 following, waiting, waiting, following, fail takedown, get a takedown, have some control, get reversed, and get beat up. It, it, it wasn't a dominant performance by her at all, and it, it kind of highlights the holes in her game technically and the holes in her game physically, in my opinion. The, the recipe for beating Carla Esparza has been out there. I've been telling people how to beat Carla Esparza for the past four years. It's just nobody ever pays attention to it. It's already out there, and I don't think she has the athleticism or the all-round skills necessary to be at the top of the weight class anymore. We know she can't beat Joanna. I don't think she can beat Claudia. I don't think she can beat Tiana Suarez. I don't, I don't really know who, who Carla Esparza can cleanly and decisively beat anymore. So I don't know what her future hmm. in this division is. When somebody you, – you name me a top person, who, can, can you say that she, she beats uh, Watterson for sure? No. Can she be <laughs> no. Nama Yunus for sure? I don't think so. Claudia Gadella for sure? No. Who, who's, the, who's the name person in the division that you know she can be for sure? You're like, oh, that's a win for her. That's not. Maybe Van that's Zandt. Not. That's iffy. Yeah, the Van Zandt one is iffy because you know Van Zandt's going to really try to get in there and pummel her, and she's going to be willing to wrestle with her for sure. 
Um, you can't be Tisha Torres. She's not being Tisha Torres with the way she's fighting right now. That's true. Um, Tisha has taken on defense. Angela uh, Hill? Joanne Carterwood, maybe? Maybe. And that's a, that's a real, real thin maybe. Maybe Joanna Carterwood. She beating Jessica Andrade? No. Yeah, Angela Hill? Angela Hill would beat her with an inch of her life right now. She's not beating Randa Marcus. She just lost to her. Joanna? Joanna beat her. So, I mean, they should have put a chalk outline around Carla Sparza after what she did to her. I mean, Claudia Gedalia? Who, I mean, who, who's the name that she's beating? Who's the person she needs to beat to stay in contendership and to make money, make the money that she says she needs? Who is it that she can beat? Who is it that isn't going to put a beating on her? Where's the safe fight? Where's the safe fight where she knows she can win it, make some money, and get herself back on track as a contender? Who's the safe fight for her in the vision? Mm-hmm. Maybe Felice Herrig, but she's not fighting her. That's a friend. So, Very true. I, I don't know. I don't know what her options are. Maybe Jessica Panay, maybe, I guess. But I mean, there's no, there's no easy fights for her. And I don't, I don't have a clear path to her. She's not a good enough wrestler. I don't know wrestling well enough. You're much more familiar with wrestling, but the people I know who do know wrestling tell me she's not a great wrestler to be controlling and taking down anybody left or right. And I don't know that she's a good enough grappler where she, just, where she just, man, she's not like a Damian Maya type. She's not even like a Misha Tate type on the ground. She's never been that kind of fighter. So I don't yeah, know. She's her- a, her grappling really like is efficient and effective is the best way to describe it. It does enough that um, it gets the job done, but outside of that, you know, it, it's 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 not enough to get through that elite level um, competition, as you're pointing out. Where where's her future? She's saying she needs money. She says she wants to get her brand. She needs to keep busy. But who is she going to keep busy against who doesn't have at least a 75% chance of, of blowing her out? She's not going to outgrapple Nama Yunus at this point. I don't know that she outgrapples. I know she's not outstriking Michelle Watterson. She's not even going to be able to get Andrade to the ground. And if Andrade puts her on the ground, she might g- go away for prison, go away to prison for what she's going to do to Asparza if she gets top control. So I don't, I don't know where she goes in the vision because I don't think she's big enough or athletic enough to really compete in a consistent level with the best of the best in the division. And even some of the new girls they got, like the girl who won tough, Suarez. Suarez is a world-class wrestler. What is Carla Esparza going to do against her? I don't know. All, all good questions there, man. All good questions. Let's look at some of the news from this past week before we close out the show. Um, GSP is coming back. He's official. It's official, man. He's coming back. Who you got? Bisbing or McGregor? Which way would you go? Um, I, I think I, personally, personally myself, I would like to see McGregor, but you know, I don't think that that's happening. Uh, it'd be it'd be the only fight where he'd make the, the real big payday. I mean, he can make money versus anybody, but if he wanted to make like real money, like real standout money, with the UFC would like, he'd fight McGregor. But McGregor, in a sense, is kind of a dangerous fight because he's such a sharp striker. And George St. Pierre, he's still seasoned, he's very experienced, but he's not the athlete he used to be. He's not. You can't have two knee surgeries, take time off, and think you're going to become a better athlete. That doesn't. That's not how that works. So that's a risky fight. The Bisping thing, I can see him doing that because that's a chance for him to extend his legacy to win to be another another guy who won a title in two weight divisions. And even though Bisping is is bigger, stronger, Bisping's not a huge middleweight, and he's still not a huge striker, and he's still not a guy as active as he is and as busy as he's on the feet. He's he he's recently he's not the hardest guy to hit, especially late in fights. So there will be opportunities for GSP to put some work in on him. But as far as, I mean, if he's going for legacy, 
it trying to prove that he's the greatest and make that stand, then beating beating Bisping does that for him. Beating McGregor is a good thing, and it's a big money fight. I don't know how likely it is to be made because I don't think they're going to pay McGregor what he wants. But I would think Bisping might have the leg up because of the legacy of attached to being a two-division champion. Hmm. I mean, come back after two years and, and, and win, a, uh, win a title at a higher weight class, that's pretty impressive. You know, so that, that's what I'm thinking. If he's going to fight at middleweight, some people said he might drop down to light, lightweight if possible. Some, I've heard that he can make lightweight. I don't know if I believe that. Yeah, I've, I've always seen that um, conversation back and forth. I don't know if that is uh, viable. But, yeah, I, I don't know why they went through all this trouble. I mean, they they knew they needed him. I don't see why they just didn't pay him in the first place. Like, so what if he, he hurt your feelings? This is the bottom line business. And, you know, he's he's really the only star you have active right now. He's not even active. He's the only star you have right now. You, you, you have to take advantage of the assets you have. You can't put the assets on the side because – you feel like they disrespected you. This is a business. Disrespect can be dealt with later. You need to make money. Mm-hmm. Definitely that. Um, next news bite I wanted to talk about was Chris Cyborg. Uh, she has been granted a retroactive TUE, and she's ready and available to fight right this minute. She can get in the cage right now. She could compete if, um, if an event was up and running. Here's my question. Will, fan, will fans care? I think fans will care. Fans will care. If she would have been in title fight, I think I think that it, it would have sold more pay-per-views, to be honest. I think fans care about her. My whole thing is, who who really wants to fight her? All these girls, every time you mention Chris Cyborg's name, they always have some kind of, um, you know, answer. And I, I'm not saying they're not legitimate answers, but they always have these answers as to why they can't fight her. Jermaine Rondami thinks that Holly Holm first needed a, her hand fixed. Now Holm deserves a rematch. Uh, some of the girls from Invicta were like, well, I'm not interested in fighting her because she is not currently available to fight. But now that she is currently available to fight, none of the girls from Invicta are saying her name. So it's like, even though it's like you have this division that's made for her, but you don't, ha- but you don't have any fighters who want to fight her in her division. It's just so strange. So um, I'm happy for her. I mean, I'm happy for her that she gets to fight and compete. I don't know that she's going to have very many options because – we have the same problem we had before. People don't want to fight her. The UFCs, I don't know if they don't offer enough money or people don't think it's worth it, but nobody wants to fight her. Holly Holm, even if she won the title, was talking about dropping back down to fight for the 35 title. Durandum Rondami is talking about, well, we'll see who's next. The number one person in the weight class is next. Who else would it be? You know, it's just, I feel bad for her because she's in a situation where she shouldn't even be in this circumstance. They should have already had the featherweight division if they were going to go through with it instead of having to make those weight cuts. Now they have the featherweight division, and none of the featherweights want to fight her. It, it's just, I mean, it's like she's off and she's free to fight, but what are you going to do if nobody wants to accept fights for ex- except for money that the UFC is not going to pay them to fight her? Very true. Very true. They're not going to pay. Um, and that's going to be a tough division to kind of brand and, um, brand and grow. Yeah, uh, they don't have that many fighters. And the best fight in the world, nobody wants to fight. And not many people, they don't have a lot of people in division. They haven't, if you notice, they still haven't signed any featherweights to featherweight at UFC. They signed a featherweight who's dropping the bantamweight. They haven't, they haven't done anything with the division. That's why I have no confidence that it's going to still be there because they haven't done anything to build it or to expand it or to set it up to be built and expanded upon. They've had that one title fight that wasn't really good and nobody really cared about it except for the controversy. And now they've, They've done nothing else to prepare for the fight moving forward, except say that Cy- Cyborg's ready to fight. Okay, well, what, 
after she fights, then what? What else do we have planned? All the girls who were talking about moving to UFC, now they're dead silent. Nobody's mentioned that yet. You know, if they have a rematch with Run Down Me at home, why not fight Cyborg on the undercard? Why isn't anybody jumping at that opportunity? When Ronda was on top, everybody wanted a piece of it. Now it's Cyborg and nobody wants to... You know, nobody's scared of her, but nobody will sign to fight her. It's very weird. Everybody's dream is fighting the UFC, fight Cyborg. Ah, oh, well, you know, I don't really know. She's, she's a cheater and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's just very weird. Yeah, it's definitely very weird, and I know it's frustrating for the promotion as a whole. I know they're they're probably pretty pissed off about the whole situation. Well, they they created everybody asked for a flyweight division, instead they give us featherweight. Everybody asked for a flyweight division, and they give us featherweight. So them being frustrated, I mean, it doesn't bother me because I mean, you created this situation. People told you what weight class to create and what you needed help in, and you went the opposite direction. So I I don't have any sympathy for you. You you created the situation. You deal with it. Fight. Yeah. If, we're, if you can't give us the best fights, then find us a division where we can get the best fights in. All right, man. You know, as always, we sit here and we talk about MMA for an hour and a half, and I think we do some very good commentary on this um, on this sport, man. We look at things, I think, from a different way, and I am pleased with everything that we got going on here, man. Like, this is definitely some... Um, some strong conversation about some things that are growing, going on within the sport right now. Yeah, I, I wanted to take a second. Uh, first of all, I want to tell people that Raphael provides me a platform to speak. He's not always supporting or approving of the comments. Do not d direct comments that I make about fighters or their corners towards him because that's just me speaking my opinion. He asked me, he asked me my opinion. I give him my opinion. I'm not saying that's what he thinks. I'm not saying he supports it. He's not telling me to say it. I'm just saying what I think. So if you, as a fighter or a fan, or agitated by what I said, then you know how to reach me on Twitter because I'm the person who said it. I'm not putting him in it. He's just asking an opinion. And I'm, giving, I'm doing my job. I'm giving it to him. Um, hey, it's all good, man. We're here to take it together. And also, as for the fans, I want to thank y'all for, uh, you know, we had our now officially our highest, our, our highest viewed show um, with Marcus Davis. And I want to thank everybody who listened to it and gave us feedback on it. Uh, we really appreciate y'all supporting us and kind of getting the word out and kind of expanding us and sharing what we're doing to other people uh, so they could, uh, you know, have an opportunity to see what we're doing and see if they want to invest or um, invest their time, time and their energy into the show we produce for the fans. And I, I just really thank all of you for sticking with us and kind of growing with us. And hopefully we can keep doing bigger and better things for you. Yeah, we're definitely going to be bringing some more interviews um, over the next few weeks. Uh, we're going to be doing that for sure. So, like, it, it's definitely uh, a big boost to our show, and we have some pretty interesting conversations coming. Yep, I look forward to having all of them. Uh, everybody, uh, once again, Raphael, appreciate everything you're doing. Hope all the fans appreciate how much work you do because you're a very busy man. and You make time for the fans and myself, so we have this platform to talk about the sport and uh, kind of address everything that's going on. So I appreciate your time and your effort greatly. Awesome, dude. Awesome. We will be back next week to talk. All right, sir. You take it easy. Have a good one.